What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. My guests today are Andy Edstrom and Daniel Prince. Andy is the author of the book, Why Buy Bitcoin? Investing Today in the Money of Tomorrow. And Daniel is the host of the Once Bitten podcast, a phenomenal show speaking to a lot of the amazing people in the Bitcoin space. Um, I've had both these guys on the show before. We've become friends and uh, we were speaking offline the other day and uh, we thought it might be interesting to have a discussion about each of our experiences in the legacy system. We've all spent some time there. Andy is still there working in wealth management. Prior to that, he had a stint at Goldman Sachs and some other firms. Uh, Daniel has worked in the currency business for a number of years in the UK, Europe, and Asia. And I worked in uh, China in financial sales and wealth management for a stint, a very brief stint. And uh, we just thought it would be fun to get together and share some of our stories and experiences, um, and then also discuss what kind of made us gravitate toward Bitcoin. And in the case of Daniel and I, what ultimately caused us to leave working in the legacy system and look for something else. And so uh, this was just that discussion. It's just uh, a bunch of laughs and a bunch of stories and uh, reflecting on what it's like to be involved in this weird and wonderful Bitcoin space at this moment in time. So that's basically it. Just a chat between friends. Hope you guys like it. Let's do it. And we are live, folks. Lauren, you're up. Bring oh, us in. Really? The introduction. <laughs> you want me to do the introduction? Yes. It's, this is John's show. Hey guys, welcome to uh, to John's show, live streaming, and um, with us is Andy Edstrom, and we are going to shill the absolute bejesus out of his book Why Buy Bitcoin, and uh, get into some um, really cool conversations, hopefully around uh, like the legacy uh, fiat system and our past and our backgrounds in in that field and. Lauren is going to ask the first question, but first of all, I'll hand over to John to uh, introduce himself. Uh, oh, I should say my background in the legacy fiat system was in a foreign exchange of all things, um, dealing dollars and yen and uh, euros and pounds. And before that, do you remember Deutschmarks, everyone? And uh, French francs and guilders and lira, right? Fiat does die every every year there's a fiat currency dying and uh, we've all been through it uh, we just forget uh john over to you and um thanks for hosting us man it's really really cool well thank you guys for for joining on this call i've been pumped about it all day and uh, i'll keep the the intro brief but you know i can't lie and say this was my idea i think you and andy were passing it back and forth before i became involved but what we uniquely share together is experience in what we not so affectionately refer to as the legacy system. And I think mine is probably the most limited uh, out of the three of us because I couldn't tolerate it perhaps uh, as long as you guys could. And I got out of it uh, rather quickly, but I thought this would be cool because you know a lot of us in this space, we're often critical of the legacy system, um, but not so many of us have experience in it. And we're also very eager when members of the legacy system kind of have that light bulb moment and they kind of come to the, the orange side as it were. And so I thought this would be fun to discuss some of our experiences and then kind of reflect on what's going on in that uh, sector today, look at the Goldman report that came out about a month ago, and uh, just do our thing and, and talk Bitcoin and, and see what happens. Andy, you're, you're muted. <laughs> Andy. Uh. 
seconds he he's muted. I think he just chose the wrong microphone thing. Uh oh. Did I oh, blow it? Can you hear me? <laughs> you blew it, Andy. You friggin' blew it. We had all that time to prepare. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Well, anyway, thank you for the for those kind words. Um I I am happy to uh to admit that I have the longest and dirtiest history here probably among us in the legacy financial system. In one respect, I'm still a part of it, although I've tried to uh, to move to uh, one of the cleaner corners. But um, it's uh, you know I I haven't had the store I haven't had the chance yet to tell some of my the earlier part of my story, and I think some people uh, may find it uh, interesting. Um, I, I I hope I don't bore people, but uh, I think it's. I think it's one, it's just one man's st story or a short part of one man's story that maybe sheds, you know, one angle or a little bit of light on uh, some of the problems with the situation uh, and the system overall. So thanks guys for making this happen. You're right. welcome, man. And uh, if you don't mind, if, if Lauren can ask the first question because it's, it's nearing bedtime and um, she's, she's ready, she's good to go. Okay, so I'm gonna go with John first, if that's okay. Uh -huh. Um, so my question is, when did you start podcasting? Hmm. Well, Lauren, you know, it's weird. I've always been fascinated with kind of understanding how other people think. And the, the, the earliest example of that I can think of was I was 17 years old and I, I went to Mount Everest base camp. So hiking in the Himalayas with my dad. And um, I brought the little camcorder. And when we got to base camp, so base camp is like where everyone gets ready to make the, the serious climb up to the top of Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. And there was this German, I, was, I went around the camp looking for someone that I could interview. So, and at that time, interview just meant shove a camera in someone's face and be like, aren't you scared about going up that mountain? And uh, I found a German guy and I parked the camera in front of him. And I basically asked a bunch of those silly questions like, are you scared? Uh, did you do any training? What kind of food are you eating? Uh, and then I didn't do much of that until I was living in Shanghai in China. And uh, there was a lot of things happening in the technology world in, uh, in 2014. And I just thought, wow, this is a really cool scene. There's lots of really interesting people doing really cool work. And uh, I thought it would be fun again, just to kind of understand how they're thinking about things. And that's where it all started rolling for me. And then uh, I've been a Bitcoin, uh, a closet Bitcoin bug for many, many years. And then last year, I, it kind of overwhelmed me, I guess. And I, uh, I couldn't help myself, but kind of focus exclusively on that. So it's actually been a bit of a hobby of mine for a while, but it's uh, only formalized in the last few years. Great okay, question. So you, so you, uh, Sorry, Andy, uh, we were not talking about Bitcoin. <laughs> then. That's okay. This is part of, this is John's story. I'm going to tell my story. It's all good. Um, and um, what was I going to say? So you started way before Daddy did. Yeah, but he's caught up because he's so good, you know? He's just a natural <laughs> pro. I, I got a good sidekick, you know. It's, well, uh, that's true, Lauren. The people on because of me. Lauren, I think you're carrying them a little bit, if I'm honest. <laughs> people kind of tune out after you finish your questions, usually. <laughs> I have looked at the average listen length of my show, and it's about seven and a half minutes. So, really? uh, yeah. <laughs> that's about the time Lauren signs off. So, do you have a question for Andy now, then? 
Uh, yeah. How many people have, has bought your book? Oh, good question. So the honest answer is I don't know because most of the sales go through Amazon and I haven't actually fully figured it. They don't have like a total unit sold number. I wish they did, but I, it's definitely in the hundreds. I don't, I don't know if I've broken a thousand yet copies. Um, but I think I'm probably close to a thousand and lately, you know, it's been basically several copies a day. You know, nice. it's not, it's not hundreds of copies a day, but it's also not zero copies a day. So somebody is buying it. Um, hopefully some percentage of the people who buy it are actually reading it. And, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, look, every time, you know, every time I see a sale pop up, it puts a smile on my face because it means that, uh, someone's, uh, you know, hearing, hearing uh, a perspective on Bitcoin and somebody's hopefully learning uh, a little more. So, yeah. And then, and by the way, there's also, it sells through Apple and, you know, it's available through Barnes and Noble and stuff too. I don't really track those sales channels. I'm actually a really terrible, I'm a really terrible businessman as it relates to selling a book. I just, uh, you know, I like to talk about it with, uh, with your dad and uh, with John and, and some other podcasters cause that's fun, but I should track it more closely, but Hopefully, hopefully it'll be, you know, in the thousands, it'll probably matter whether, whether the price of Bitcoin goes up, right? Whether we get a bull market, uh, which I think we will, but yeah, that's, uh, that's where it is right now. Lauren, the big question here is, have you read Andy's book yet? No, but I had started reading, uh, Knut's book, but I stopped that because, um, I got like, and if Knut's watching, no offense, I got a bit bored. <laughs> and I was reading a load of other books. So I was like, I'll just leave this aside to daddy because he was reading well. So I just lose my page and everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's a million reasons why. Oh, man. Uh, but uh, no, I haven't read it yet. Can well, we'll keep. I'm sure, I'm sure Andy's is next on the list, right? After you work your way through Knut's. Mine's is, I'll be I'm next. I'm going to my way through a thousand more books while I'm reading right now. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. You've got human action lined up. So, you oh. know, it could be a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, for, you know, we're all trying, uh, Lauren, we're all, those of us who have written uh, books, and by the way, Canute has written two now, I think, and they're both yeah. great and people should check them out. Um, but uh, yeah, we're all trying to, find the way to write the book that'll reach, you know, some number of people, you know, some, for some people it's a, uh, it's a longer form, you know, Saifedean wrote a 300 page book, which is great. You know, for some people it's shorter formats. Um, mine is kind of in the middle and uh, we all just try our best to, uh, to reach a few people. So and Lauren, just like you, you, I hope you give books. I hope you give other Bitcoin books, a you know, another shot. And uh, <laughs> yeah. And Lauren, like you, we're just trying to understand what this thing is and, you know, what it means and what are the impacts and the significance of all this? You know, we're uh, we're very much learning as well. Oh, and I still got um, a question for Andy um, on his book. OK, please. <laughs> 
have you any of your family bought the book yet? <laughs> oh, yes, they have, actually. In fact, some of my family members have bought the book and uh, left me you know, a five-star review on, uh, on Amazon. So that's been fun. And I'm sure the first, if you look at the history of the sales, I don't know if I, I think I mentioned that you can sort of see that, although they don't have a, a total number. Yeah. There was a big order, I think, soon after I published it, and I have a suspicion that it might have been my mom that bought a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> she handed it out to her. She handed it out to uh, to her friends, and uh, so yes, so family members. Some of my family members definitely have bought it, and uh, several of them have read it, and a few have even left uh, reviews, which suggests to me that either they actually read the book and liked it or they just love me very much. That's a good one. <laughs> um, also, go back when you said um, I was, uh, um, uh, when I was like a terrible um, book designer thing. What's when that? You said, like a few minutes ago, he said mm -hmm. that he he couldn't. Um... Oh, he was a bad book businessman. Yes, yeah, because he so wasn't like, tracking his sales. Maybe yeah. my <laughs> sister Caitlin can come and help me with that because she oh. loves organizing <laughs> stuff. Nice, good pitch, good job, yeah. Lauren. Uh, taking care of family and uh, you know helping helping uh, helping uh, you know connect people. Good work. And just on that Thank point you. about Andy's family, you know, not only buying the books, but, you know, maybe hopping on and doing some reviews. I just went to Amazon.ca and the first review I see is from this guy. And the second review I see is the top international review from Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do you say, Daniel? That's amazing. I'm loving it. You guys have both, you guys were both early supporters you're both great supporters and i'm very uh i'm very appreciative of the kind words that uh that you left on online so that's awesome our pleasure that's, I'm sure. that's really cool my pleasure it doesn't surprise me at all that those were the best and uh, most popular in the first <laughs> reviews that came up so have you finished with your questioning yeah yeah okay yeah okay, okay would you um, say good night yeah, to the guys um, yeah, that's what I was about to do. I'll step aside then. <laughs> Good night and bye. See you, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. Bye -bye. Good night. I'm talking to you. <laughs> oh, and sorry, John. I didn't give you that much questions than uh, Andy. Oh, well, next time, Lauren. I'm a, I'm a little bit sad about that, but you can make it up next time. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be another opportunity. We'll do, we'll figure out a way to do every combination and permutation of, uh, you know, or we'll do a repeat. Some night Lauren will just DM me for one of those random live streams. She'll be like, dad doesn't know I'm coming on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> guard your, guard your login and your password. You're going to have other, uh, other people using the, the Princey, uh, you know, the Princey uh, <laughs> login credentials. Yeah. All right. So gents, yeah. um, why don't we break into the meat of this? Uh, Andy, I think you are probably the best one to get us kicked off, given your experience and, and the report from Golden and uh, Goldman and that kind of stuff. So why don't you hit us with uh, what's been on your mind? Yeah, man. So thanks for that, John. Uh, Princey, thanks for the intro. Lauren's awesome. Uh, 
you're obviously uh, letting her find her way down the path. You're giving her good leadership, but you're you're letting her ask questions and uh, and think for herself, which uh, thankfully uh, you're doing it is is a rare thing in in this world we live in. But um, but John, thanks for the prompt. Um, if you guys will humor me, I'm gonna turn on the Wayback Machine over here. It's a, it operates on a crank, which is why I have to crank it right now. So we're gonna move we're gonna move back. The year is 2002. It's it's October 2002, and a young Andy Edstrom is uh, excited to be graduating from college uh, the following year in 2003, and He's looking for a job, so he's interviewing, uh, you know, on Wall Street, and he's an econ major. He uh, has big ideas, and uh, he wants to make money. And he's heard that the way to learn a lot and get paid well on the way, basically, learn about business, learn about the belly of the of the economic beast, right? Learn about the heart and the circulatory system of the economy, which is finance and Wall Street, he's heard that the way to do that is, uh, is go get a job on Wall Street. Now, unfortunately for him, uh, he's, he's graduating into probably the worst job market in the last decade, because thanks in part to the idiotic policies of the Federal Reserve in the prior years, there has been this huge bubble in the stock market in, in general, but especially tech stocks, right? That was the internet bubble of the late 90s, early 2000s. And it has popped. And, you know, basically nobody, hardly anyone on the street is, is hiring. Now, fortunately, we're sort of at the inflection point and uh, there's starting to be sort of signs of life. And uh, there are starting to be a few job opportunities but I can tell you that my, uh, you know, my graduating class, I can count on two hands, you know, the total jobs in, in, you know, Wall Street, basically, that, uh, that occurred. There's a handful of people that got hired. I consider myself, you know, really lucky to have, to have basically snagged a spot. And I started at a place called Rothschild. And we could spend a whole episode talking about the Rothschild family. Um, you know, I... I'm sure you guys can, uh, you know, can recommend people uh, in terms of reading, you know, Neil Ferguson, not the, um, not the guy who's been in the news about his projections, which were dead wrong about the, about the COVID pandemic, but the other Neil Ferguson who writes economic history has written some good books. Uh, Creature from Jekyll Island uh, also covers some of the Rothschild history. Uh, suffice to say that the Rothschild family dominated finance for a couple of centuries, um, you know, prior to the last two, but um, but I signed on with those guys, and then a year into that job, I got a call from a recruiter at Goldman, and at that time, the cycle had basically started to turn, and they were like, "Look, uh, we didn't have a lot of jobs; we weren't hiring much before, but now we need people." Um, there was interestingly one guy who got hired straight out of out of uh, my college class to Goldman, and. It just so happened that his father was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company that was probably paying Goldman, if not millions of dollars of fees per year on average, then you know possibly ten, tens of millions or an excess of, of 10 million a year in revenues. So it's interesting, I think, to think about how that uh, 
you know, how that system works. Um, not saying that the guy wasn't, uh, wasn't qualified, just that in an environment where there was, you know, only one slot to fill, um, you know, he, he's the one that got it. But, um, but I managed to move over. And when I joined Goldman, like I said, I wanted to make money. I wanted to learn a lot. I wanted to have a platform to, uh, you know, to jump off of later. To my mind, Wall Street then was a little bit like big tech now, right? It was, it was the establishment. It was the way to get tons of experience, um, basically be working in, you know, some of the dominant firms in the whole economy. So in that sense, the ball has shifted or things have moved, um, you know, in the intervening, whatever it is, 17 years, but a similar dynamic. But one of the things that I discovered at, at Goldman soon after I joined was the hierarchy. And the top of the pyramid, right, at Goldman is the partner level. So when I joined, it was estimated that roughly 2% of employees at Goldman were partner level. Partner was the top. Um, these guys were tended to be running a department or running a group within a department. And at the time I joined, the story was that the average annual compensation for a partner at Goldman was about $8 million. $8 million a year, average comp for the top 2% of the firm. Um, needless to say, people competed, let's say people competed pretty hard to get those slots, those spots. I was just a lowly analyst, okay? I was, the, I was in the front office, so I was you know, on the track that could eventually potentially lead, you know, to, to that, to that level, you know, if I was lucky enough and ruthless enough and smart enough and willing to work, you know, 80 hours a week, basically, you know, for 10 or 15 years of, of my life. Um, and so, and so that was the top echelon. And what I, what I noticed, it took a little while, but probably within a year, what I, what I realized was, this job of partner was, was interesting and it, and it had some strange elements. And the one strange thing was these guys seem to spend probably the majority of their time managing conflicts of interest. And I'm going to say in quotation marks, managing conflicts of interest. Okay. So what did that mean? So if you're making $8 million a year on average at Goldman, your job is not to bring in revenue for the firm that is your job, but more specifically, your job is to squeeze every last possible dollar out of every situation that comes across your desk. Every transaction that you come across, you gotta figure out a way to not only make money on it, but make as much money as possible on it without, and this is the managing conflicts piece, without uh, crossing the line or breaking the law, or I should actually say getting caught breaking the law, um, or basically, you know, pushing the envelope too far. And so I, I remember working on one of these deals in particular, and this was the partner that was the head of my group or one of the heads of my group at the time was very excited about this. He talked about this thing, which was called a quadruple play. And what it was, was it was a deal where Goldman was literally working four sides of the deal, four angles. And I won't get too much into the specifics, but suffice to say that this company was uh, getting sold. Goldman was working as the advisor, you know, the sell side advisor, and they're making a multi-million dollar fee on that. Um, Goldman's private equity arm was bidding to buy the company, right? Um, 
my group was arranging the financing, the debt structure, you know, basically to fund the acquisition. And the commodities group, the swaps group, had put together this elaborate hedging mechanism because it just happened to be that this particular company uh, was in the paper business and they had, you know, commodity price inputs. And, and so they wanted to reduce the risk of the fluctuation in price of those inputs so they could secure their profitability. Okay, so Goldman was literally playing four sides of the deal. Um, it reminds me a little bit of, of, uh, of my actual favorite book. This is Catch-22. I don't know if you guys know this book, but there's a scene. It's a dark comedy about World War II, but there's a scene where there's this court martial and there's this hapless, you know, enlisted guy in the army, basically, and he's deployed in Europe. And he's been, you know, someone's leveled an accusation at him. And he has, so that you got the board that's basically prosecuting him. And then he's got, uh, you know, a defense attorney, basically. And then there's a, essentially a judge that's going to, you know, basically render, render a verdict. And the same guy is in all three seats, right? <laughs> it's the judge, jury, and executioner <laughs> deciding this guy's fate from, uh, you know, from, from multiple angles. And that's what Goldman was doing, at least when I was there. And what's interesting is law firms, okay, big corporate law firms, they're big players in the, in the money game, the finance game. They don't do this. They are wise enough, and, and I think at least in the history that I'm aware of, to manage conflicts of interest more carefully. They tend to pick one party in a transaction, and they back that party, and they work for them, but they don't you know, take on a third, or second client, and a third client, and a fourth client, fourth client that have different interests in the same transaction. And so I've gone on a bit there, so I'll leave it, at, uh, I'll leave it there, but that was sort of my first and initial um, you know, exposure to how this machine works and how the very top echelon, the very senior guys spend their time managing conflicts so as to suck in as much revenue from as many angles as possible. Uh, if I can hop in for a sec, I'd like to go back to the Wayback Machine, but I'll, I'll put a little context around it first. I think perhaps like both of you, uh, but at least my experience, when I was in high school, you know, all I wanted to be when I grew up was rich. That's, you know, I didn't really care how, and I, I, I had enough exposure to financial markets and stuff like that through just random conversations with my dad or his friends or whatever, that I thought, well, that's the, that's the straightest shot there. You know, you deal in money, you know, you just, that's the closest, I guess I actually kind of knew uh, subconsciously, like that was your closest to the spigot, right? You know, and so I, I wanted to go there uh, to catch some of that. And, you know, so in grade 10, grade 11, I was reading security analysis and, um, you know, all the famous Buffett, Graham, you know, Munger, everyone, everyone's books, uh, Fisher. And I thought, you know, this is what I wanted. And I started simultaneously during that time to kind of think, because I didn't have any qualms about any moral quandaries about that business or anything. But I started to kind of like, you know, grade 12, first year out of, uh, out of high school. And, uh, but I still had that inkling, like that, that dream that I'd had for so long and that I'd been kind of prepping for. So after university, um, you know, I went to uh, Shanghai, my only objective was to get a job in finance. So like by hook or by crook, I don't care. I got to get my foot in the door. And uh, I end up getting involved in a, you know, these independent financial advisory firms. And this was kind of the biggest on the scene at the time. They had offices in different cities in China as well as other countries. 
But it, as in most emerging markets, at, at least at the time, I'm not sure what it's like now, these services were relatively unregulated. You know, so what it meant was is that they were selling, you know, kind of offshore products from major financial institutions from Europe or from mostly Europe, not so much the U.S., but the products were a bit different because of the markets that they played in. But because it was unregulated, what you ended up getting was probably a hyper, uh, you know, hyper version of what you might see in regulated markets where it didn't matter. Credentials didn't matter, uh, nor did know-how or, you know, intellect, education, anything. What mattered was can you sell because that's that's the name of the game. And there were no restrictions on who you could find to do that because it was unregulated. So, you know, I'm in a pool. I, I go in there super green, right? I'm thinking, wow, this is a nice office, marble floors, white leather couches, you know, this uh, Bloomberg on the TV. And I show up, you know, in my suit that I get from the fake market and my phony tie and stuff. And uh, I think, you know, here I am, I'm going to like, I'm going to use all my knowledge and everything I've collected over the years to really do like, you know, really make money for the people, the, the clients that I'm going to serve. And very quickly, you realize that is irrelevant. You know, nobody wants what's in your, nobody wants you, your, your knowledge or anything like that. They want you to develop relationships and sell. And back office, you know, could be in another country, could, can deal with the strategy and the, the technical approach and all that kind of stuff. You know, you don't do any of that. You and 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 more or less nobody does that because these products kind of have, you know, a select group of funds, and the firm says like, you know, these are funds for high risk, medium risk, low risk. You don't need to think anything more about it. You just go out there and sell your damn ass off. And um, you know that was that was fairly jarring, and that's part of the reason why I really I really didn't like it nor excel in that role because that's just not me. I can't sit in front of a person and act like I don't care about them. You know, even if my incentives are pulling me in another direction, it's just, it's not me. And I, I wear it on my face. Like if I'm lying to you, you're probably going to be able to tell because my eyes and my facial expressions will be different. So uh, that was my initial experience and, and the context I'm providing there. And we can, you know, go back to that later if we want. But Andy, I'm curious, when you first started at Rothschild and then at, at later at Goldman, Obviously, you had expectations going in. What, were, what was the contrast between your expectations and what you were met with when you started in these positions? You know, that's an interesting question. And by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one thing, which is definitely most people at, the, at both those firms and that I worked with were basically ethical, uh, I think, well-meaning people. I mean, they were definitely you know, driven and they wanted to make money. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think for the most part, you know, they want, they, they wanted to, and were willing to do the right thing. And I think what was interesting was, you know, you, you mentioned the, the sort of the sales machine that you, you know, parachuted into. There's definitely some of that. Um, I wasn't, I was in a, you know, it's sort of a different part of the firm that sort of had a different function. And there were other, you know, conflicts and issues and, and actually my function, like I was mostly a spreadsheet jockey. Right. So there definitely was some sales involved and, and, you know, every deal that I had to, that I worked on or helped with structuring, you know, and putting together had to get sold. 
a difference is that most of the buyers of that product, I'm talking about junk bonds and junk loans, most of the buyers were institutional. And I think they were a little smarter and had a little better nose, you know, basically for the BS that, uh, it, let's put it this way. It's harder, I think, to get, you know, a clever sales pitch past a portfolio manager, you know, who's running a multi-billion dollar mutual fund or hedge fund than it is to get a sales pitch, you know, to a, to a retail client. Sure. Although I'm putting words in your mouth. I don't know if that was your, your client base, but so, so it was a little different, but yeah, in terms of my expectations, I guess that I expected to learn a lot and not have to think about, I shouldn't say not have to think about ethical issues, but not have to worry about bumping into ethical issues. And I think, you know, the conflict of interest situation I described was one element, which sort of the pieces came together, but there were other elements that came to light later, right? There were things that happened that people learned about during and after the global financial crisis that were more concerning. And I, you know, like there was the Abacus deal where literally, you know, Goldman ended up paying a half a billion dollar fine because they specifically put together, you know, they put together pieces of toxic, uh, you know, mortgage-backed security debt and they actually missold it. So they, they lied about what it was. They claimed that, oh, it's just a sort of representative sample of all these assets out there in the market. When actually their, one of their clients had hired them as a hedge fund Paulson company specifically to put together you know, a, a toxic brew of the worst securities so that that fund could take the downside you know, bet, right? bet against it, while Goldman's customers you know, took the other side of the bet. So in other words, and again, that was, you know, that was the mortgage department that did that, but, but still it was part of the same firm, right? And the story, the bigger story of Wall Street, whether it's Goldman or anyone else is, the industry has paid hundreds of billions of dollars in fines. And I know, I know Princey knows some specific examples of, uh, you know, of some of the chicanery and some of the cases that, that uh, you know, that came out of it. But I guess that, I guess that I, I probably assumed that there would be some hard, you know, sharp elbows, you know, I don't want to claim that I was, you know, totally, you know, doe-eyed, you know, had no pretensions of, I, I'll never forget when, this was an interview a few years ago, I think, when Lloyd Blankfein, CEO of Goldman, someone asked him, you know, what his job was, and he said, oh, we're doing God's work, right? <laughs> CEO of Goldman Sachs, we're here to do God's work. And I think he meant it as a joke, but of course it went viral. Um, yeah, I think that I, I think that I learned that it's a very tricky game that the, that the finance industry plays. And they, they put, as I say about the partners, they play the conflicts, they push the envelope as far as they think they can without going over the edge. And the problem is sometimes they go over the edge. Yeah. And, and Princey, I want you to jump in, but just on the a final point on that, and I, cause I got to give people their due. I don't want to construe that everyone I worked with was like a monster, right? But it really is one of those cases where the incentives drive the behavior that uh, it, either in hindsight or in the moment is, is probably not the best behavior. So 
like when we would go to the pub afterwards or we'd go for nights out or we'd go for dinner, like many of them were, you know, night, great, nice, decent people, you know, they're not going to otherwise very good people. But when your only incentive is to sell as hard as you can and get juice as much as you can from your clients and you're judged on that and you're singled out on that. And at the quarterly performance reviews, you're either praised or you're, you know, in some cases brought down in the dirt if you didn't perform like that amount of, you know, pressure and the level of the incentives just means that all your energy and attention is going to go toward one single behavior. And if that nets a bad outcome, if that behavior is, is, you know, it's hard to judge these things because it's good for the firm, but it's, you know, maybe not as good for the retail investors, but it, it's the incentives that drive all this. So, you know, it's been said many times that perhaps we're no better than our incentives, but it's just, it's such a, and I'm sure this is the case on wall street. It's just so powerful, the pressure to perform and, you know, both from an organization level and the incentive, the carrot dangling in front of you is so powerful that, and then the group think you think, well, if everyone else is doing it, then I got cover fire. I can go ahead and, and do this stuff because it's normal. And those two things put together and, and you get, you get that type of behavior. Yeah. hundred, hundred percent. Um, hundred percent, you know, the, the analogy, I, I hesitate to make the analogy, but I'm, I'm lying. You know, if I say it hasn't crossed my mind, right. You think about real failure modes in society, right? Like fascism, <laughs> like Nazi Germany, like, you know, and you think about, well, you know, if it's pop, I don't think all Germans that were living, you know, right. in the 1930s in Germany were evil. In fact, I think most of them were probably just people. And yet you get that kind of an outcome. And again, not to equate Nazi Germany with Wall Street, but it is illustrative of the fact that with the wrong incentives and with the crowd, you know, playing along, yeah, you can get, let's say, suboptimal outcomes. And the, um, yeah, the incentives, as you say, that we're only, as, in most cases, we're only as good as, as our incentives. And uh, yeah, if you, if you, if you put a, a person's rep, if you compare a person's reputation to a system's reputation and you put the person in the system, it's probably the system's reputation that will endure rather than the person's, unless, unless you get out. Daniel. Yeah. Um, I agree with everything you guys have been saying so far. Um, what, what do you call it, Andy? The wine bag machine or something? Is, is the that way right? back, the way back the, machine, the way is back it, machine, go way back. Go I'll way give back. you, I'll give you the way back. Holy crap. Um, and it's kind of a warning really to, to those that um, truly believe that, you've got to get the the degrees and the uh, the undergrads and whatever else to, to get into this game because I didn't and I know hundreds who didn't uh, as well. Um, I mean, for me, growing up, my dad was um, always, he always worked at a bank and um, in um, across different products, but um, ultimately in, in the end in, in foreign exchange. And I had grown up you know, swearing to never follow in his footsteps. You know, no way am I doing that. I wanted to be, uh, I don't know, like, um, I think like most kids, a policeman or a fireman at one stage. And then towards like uh, when it was getting to like go time, I was thinking, you know, landscape gardening or something, be outside. I just wanted to be outside. I did not want to be chained to a desk. I'd see my father be chained to a desk, you know, his whole, his whole life, his whole career in the end. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, 
you know, you, you just get pulled in at the, the age of 19. I was, I was done with academia. I couldn't do it another day of school. Like the, the thought of even applying for university was just not on the cards. And, uh, a call came in, um, from, uh, a friend of a friend of his in, in the business, uh, you know, who, who knew me well and knew I was at like eight, 19 years of age and probably looking for a job and said, well, does he want to come and, you know, trial out on the desk? And, uh, that happened to be, um, the foreign exchange, um, spot dollar mark desk in London, which was the busiest market by far um of any market at that time so um of course up i went like john in like the crappiest suit from marks and spencers that uh you know (laughs) you're ever gonna buy and uh walking in thinking you know what's this all about and this was 1995 uh and i had to be on the desk present on the desk by uh, Wait, wait sorry sorry to interrupt you princey if we're going back to 1995, I have to crank the Wayback Machine a little farther back. Here we go. Okay. All right. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the, uh, I turn up. <clears throat> I had to be present on the desk and ready to go between 6 and 6.15 a.m. And uh, I turn up, you know, bright-eyed and, uh, you know, what's this job all about? And uh, get introduced to... Um, to the other trainee um, who was going to be, you know, kind of shepherding me through this, this world of big finance. Uh, he put a notepad and a pen in my hand and he said, right, you started that ginger guy. Uh, they were all sitting in a circle, right? Dollar Mark um, spot brokers sat in a circle and they had a microphone and they had um, uh, speakers in front of them and each button that they could press, they could speak directly to a squawk box and they had a light and that the, the, the um, if they had the best bid in the room, they turned on the orange light. If they had the best offer in the room, they turned on the green light. So everybody knew where the price was at any time. And it was just, you know, when it booted off, it was just electric. You know, it was uh, very, uh, it got the adrenaline running. But anyway, notepad, first first morning, notepad, pen. You start at the ginger guy, you end at the gray guy. Just ask them what they want for breakfast and move on. I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is big finance, right? Here we go. <clears throat> first guy um hey uh good morning uh good morning like what the fuck do you want like, oh uh i'm 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 dan i'm i'm the new guy he's like you gay <laughs> what <laughs> no i don't think so what, what would you like for breakfast <laughs> marmite and toast spread evenly to each and every corner of the bread and i want the bread brown and warm to a, a minimum of 32 degrees and a black coffee. Thank you very much. Okay. I write that down. I go to the next guy. I look at him. I interrupt him because they're just sitting there. They're just squawking numbers, right? Six, eight, six, eight, uh, excuse me, six, eight. What the fuck do you want? I'm like, I'm, I'm the new guy. Uh, I would like to uh, take your breakfast order. Okay. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> what? <laughs> But at that point I twigged because I had grown up with my dad watching all of the old classic movies and I just hit him straight back with the next quote from Airplane. And that was where that quote was from, that film. Uh, And I think it was, um, yeah, I mean, I just was, no, but I like gladiator movies. And it was like, bam, right, you're passing the test. 
uh, okay, I would like, um, first of all, from the news agent, a packet of cigarettes, and I would like this, and I would like this. So I went around like nine orders of these guys, and then met with the other trainee. I'm like, right, I think I got it all. He's like, don't, don't worry, I know it all off by heart anyway, but that's like first test. So we go down, and as we're going down, he passes me some car keys. He's like, can you drive, by the way? I'm like, yeah, yeah I can. He's like, right, okay, well, we're going to have to go drop the breakfast orders and then go get the cars off. By, and we've got to have the cars off by 7.30. Otherwise, the guys get fined. And then I tell you, it's hell to pay. I'm like, okay. So we drop this. We drop our orders off at the local sandwich shop. And then we walk around to Finsbury Circus where these two identical, except one was blue and one was green. I don't know. These must have been Bentleys from the 70s. Massive things. Right. The only thing I've ever driven was like a, a Vauxhall Corsa and with stick shift. Right. This thing, it was like driving a front room. I'm in London. I've never driven in London before. <laughs> it's one of these weird stick shifts you have on the steering wheel. I think you have them in the US. I'd never seen one in yep. my life. Yep. So he's like, right, just follow me. So we go off and park this one guy's car way over off, uh, I don't know, miles and miles away uh, near Brick Lane. And then I dropped that one off and I jump in with him and then we go and park his car on the Liverpool Street station. Then we go and get the breakfast. Then we take everything upstairs. Then we hand it all out. And I'm thinking, geez, like, you know, what is going to happen next? And so the day goes by <clears throat> and I'm just sent for coffees every like five, 10 minutes or like uh, Snickers bars or, um, oh my God, I don't even want to tell you what happened when scratch cards became a thing. <laughs> you were just a total dog's body and you would take dry cleaning. You would take um, shoes to get mended. I pretty much knew every single one of their um, ATM cards, uh, their pin numbers, because they would just give me their pin card, uh, their, their cards, go and draw me out 150. I'm going out tonight, go and draw, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'll go and do that. I'd put bets on for them. I would go down to the local. Um, if they got a tip from a cabbie on the way in in the morning on a, on a horse race, that was it. The whole desk would pile in. I would have to, in the height of summer, I would have to go down in this long, great big Mac and have like every pocket I had stuffed with different rolls of cash and different names. It was just a, a nightmare. But on this, on the gopher, a total gopher, a total gopher. I don't this know if was, people know what gopher means anymore. No, Tell them, I, you know what, you know what it means. This, this is gopher life. And this would have been if I'd have spent three to four years at university, right? This, you know, that, that's the opportunity cost of going to university if you're looking to get into this game. I mean, the banks insist on it. They used to. I don't know whether they still are. I think we're probably moving away from that now. Um, but on the brokerage side, um, if you could stand that test, it was like um, boot camp. Um, anyway, I'll finish off the, 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 the first story because at the end of the day, we had to reverse the process of getting the cars. And this was on my second day. The, uh, the other trainee and I, um, it got to like uh, 4.30, quarter to five. And uh, we knew the guys, the, the two directors would want their Bentleys on Finsbury Circus ready for them to get home to their families, right? So we went down to the Liverpool Street Station. We would get into uh, the car park. We'd get into the, uh, the, uh, what, the, the blue Bentley. <laughs> and the other trainee would drive me all the way to Brick Lane. I would jump out, pick up the other Bentley, and I would follow him back because I still didn't know my way around London, right? Second day, no chance. On the way back to Finsbury Circus, this dickhead, he decides it'll be pretty funny to try and, you know, lose me 
along the way and uh, started playing a few games and started speeding up through, around the back streets of London. And <laughs> I, remember, I remember vividly that uh, we were coming down to, to Bishopsgate straight back towards uh, Liverpool Street Station and he had gunned it. He was trying to make the lights so he could get through the lights before me and I would get caught. So I'm like, there's no way I'm falling for that. So I gunned mine as well. And then I saw he got caught. So he's now first at the lights, caught on the red light. And I'm like, thank God. I don't know where, I don't know whether I've turned left or right. God knows. We didn't have mobile phones, right? No, there's, no, no there's no Google Maps. <laughs> no. <laughs> so he gets caught at the lights. So I take my foot off the accelerator and I start pressing on the brake. On the brake. But the car, the, the car keeps getting faster and faster and faster. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what the fuck is going on right now? It got to the point where I was hanging. I, my, my bum was off the seat. I was hanging on the steering wheel. I had both feet, both feet on the brake pedal, full tilt on the brake pedal, my whole weight fighting the fishtailing that was going on. The smoke coming out of the back wheel was going everywhere, bearing down on this other director's Bentley about to total the pair of them on my second day. So in the end, I just turned off the ignition and I stopped about a yard, um, a meter um, behind the bumper of this other guy's car. He gets <laughs> out of the car, <laughs> he comes marching around, he yanks the car door open, he's about to yank me out of the car because he thought so, he just thought I was fucking about. And, but he could see I was just like completely white as a sheet and just trembling. And he's like, what happened? I'm like, it wouldn't stop. The car wouldn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, all right, chill out. What did you do? And I just turned the ignition off. He's like, okay, fine. So he knocked the thing into neutral. He turns the ignition on and this thing made the biggest bang you've ever heard in your life, right? These, these are like... But kaboom. And these are post like IRA bomb days in London and stuff, right? You know, people are not impressed when that shit goes down. <laughs> people are on tenterhooks. It turned out the accelerator cable had got stuck when I'd floored it to get after him. And God knows how he knew how to unstick it, but he opened the bonnet and he put his finger in. He's like, right, right, fine. We'll just creep around to Finsbury Circus. We put the cars on the meter. We went back upstairs, gave the keys back to the directors, and didn't say a word. So you know, I was probably one meter away from never actually entering the financial services in any shape or form if I'd have gone back with the car keys and two totaled Bentleys. Um, that's, a great, that's a great story. Yeah. And it brings back to my mind, because you forget this stuff because it was so yeah. far back, so way back, which is... Yeah, and the few, first few days on the job, you know, whether you're coming in, you know, at any level, basically, you really don't know what the hell's going on. You're just you're sucking it all in. You're trying to not screw up. You're desperately, desperately trying to not screw up. You're like, this is my ticket. You know, for some reason, you know, this place where they mint all this money is willing to to invite me in the door. You know, I got to not blow this chance. And I actually remember living. It, it was, you know, it ebbed and flowed, but there was definitely fear. There's definitely plenty of fear in the experience, at least, you know, in the first couple of years because of what you described. You never know what 
some senior guy is going to say. You never know when some mid-level guy is going to pull a prank on you, right? Or, you know, the, the guy that knows he basically can screw with you and knows that you don't know the ropes yet. Um, I, never, I never was at risk, I don't think, of actually crashing a vehicle and potentially, uh, you know, injuring myself or, uh, or others. But there were definitely, there's definitely that. That's definitely part of the culture or was part of the culture at the time. I love that story, man. That's a great story. Yeah, it's it's true. You know, you 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 go in, and um, what I fear um, and what I've seen uh, repeatedly is, um, you know, kids walk in. They're, they're 24 years old. They've got the MBA and whatever else, and they like they they want to go in and they want to add value, like immediately. It's like you know, this is what I want to do. This is what I've studied for. This is what I've been through the economics and you know, you know sold myself down the river for and got 200 grand's worth of debt to be in this seat and the first thing you ordered to do is go get a coffee and a sandwich for someone and like you know you got a 43 year old knuckle dragon futures trader sitting there like he sees you as a threat he's going to do the utmost to make sure you do not excel you do not show him up like you know if you start cranking out spreadsheets that he can't even with with pie charts and venn diagrams and all he's like you know, <laughs> what's he going to do he's going to quash you as quickly as he can and this is why kids coming in they get disenchanted with the business very very quickly so how far did you go princey like i presume that you became one of those people whose order was taken at some point uh, yes. number one, how did you deliver that order did you did you become the monster or did you have a little bit more uh you know, empathy when you were giving your orders and, uh, you know, take us to the point where, you know, you decided that I basically what I'm asking, did you, how far did you go into it? How much did it kind of take over your behavior and your mind and your attitude? And then what was the point at which you decided, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't working for me. Yeah. I mean, I spent 18 years in total in the business and, um, for the first three years, it was, it was that hell. You know, it, it was that. Um, and I finally got the break when I had to go and cover for someone in Singapore because uh, the desk was was short, one or two guys, and uh, nobody in their London office would, would even consider going. Um, you know, this was 98, uh, and Singapore wasn't even really heard of. And, you know, London was the center, right? You know, it's like... Mm-hmm. I ain't going over there. That's ridiculous. Like London's where it is, where it is. Right. Um, but I did go over there and I ended up get, um, you know, getting hired full time to your point, John. Yes. I did become one of those guys that, um, what was, you know, got the seat at the desk, got the shot at the big time and started talking to the big accounts and started making the relationships. And like you said earlier, all you're there to do is make relationships. That's mm-hmm. it. You make relationships and, you know, by hook or by crook and you, you take them out for dinner. You have the expense account. You take them out for dinner. You take them out for drinks. You play golf with them, whatever it is, whatever their bent is, you, you know, you do that. Uh, you build the relationship um, with the hope that they're going to do business details with you. To, details to remain sketchy for the moment, right? I like, I like how you said whatever their bent is. We'll just leave <laughs> yes. it at that, right? Right, Princey? Well, you know. I don't want to go. Yeah, we've all seen the films. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lauren may be listening someday. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, yeah, I don't sorry to interrupt. Do I, had, I had to bust your balls a little there. Oh, of it's course. Part, it's part um, of the business, of course. Exactly. It's nothing I've not, nothing I've not known, Andy. Um, but yeah, John, you know, I never wanted to be that dick. 
that was, um, you know, just sending people down. You know, I would pull the odd prank for sure, but it was always, always in good faith. And uh, um, I hope if any anybody that worked under me ever listens to this would uh, would attest to to that. But um, I, I didn't, I really didn't see the point in in that in that kind of behavior. Um, you know, the, the, the people that did it would tell you, oh, it's to toughen you up, it's to make sure that we know that you're good enough for the business and, you know, you're, you're going to stand the test of time. One of the tests, like your first week, they'll just take you out and try and get you as drunk as possible. And, you know, are you going to puke at the bar and, you know, make a show of yourself in front of the, the customers? Or mm-hmm. can you hold your own? I mean, this is, this is like, you know, it's, it's like frat, it's, it's fraternities. Yeah. It's hazing, um, it's frat hazing, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Did I, did I answer your, your question there, John? Uh, was there anything else? Well, I also was kind of interested in when you decided to extricate yourself from that situation. And, you know, the funny thing about it is hazing what you just described, but it's, it's also training. Like you have to become that person. Like I'm sure you've been out on many of these relationship building occasions where, you know, on the forefront, you're going out, you're getting smashed, having a good meal, you're doing whatever else. You're, you know, you're building that relationship. But there's a perspective behind the surface level where you're like, okay, you're like, you know exactly what's going on here. You, there, there's a tether to, from your intention to kind of the outer look. You're like, okay, we're getting smashed. And then tomorrow morning, I'm going to do this. And this is this. And, you know, and so they were kind of, even though it's, it seems like kind of a crude method of, of training, I mean, that's, that's a skill that the system rewarded. And so they treated you that way. And then you went on to treat others that way. And, you know, that's, that's what's interesting about this on a systemic level is like, you know, and of course it's not just a system that's human psychology. That's how people make decisions, whatever, whatever. But it's interesting that, you know, the system breeds, I guess, that type of behavior. But uh, yeah, where, when did you start getting the inkling that like, or, or why did you leave? I guess is the is the real question. Um, hmm. Yeah, eighteen years in. Um, great, great fun in the early days. Uh, not the first like uh, one. Even the, the first one to three years, you know, it was, it was fun to a certain level. Even though you were just the gopher. Um, but then when you got your shot and you. Um, you started making inroads and you felt as though you deserved it. Um, it was kind of like this um, self-reinforcing loop. And then that just kind of like dies away, I guess, you know, it's, um, it's one of these businesses that just, uh, just takes something from you kind of like in a very, very small drippy way. It's like dollar cost averaging, like, you know, your soul out of you. And, um, it was, it, it got to a point where I was like, this is, this is never going to change. I, I got in in 2012 to my de- when I was still in foreign exchange and I turned my computer on on like the 2nd of Jan. And I was like, another 10 to 20 of this? Like, <laughs> can, that, can that be? Can that be? And the twins had just come along. So we were now four kids deep. Uh, and I was like, you know, I had all the bills running through my head. The back of envelope math didn't work out. Nothing worked out. Like nothing at all. Like, and then um, uh, within two or three days, um, my direct manager at the time um, told me that um, 
he'd been called in to, to one of my uh, big accounts and was told that uh, he's going to be taking over the account now because this, that, and, and the, the excuse was complete bullshit. And I'm like, you know what? I'm so done with this now. I can't be bothered to fight these battles. And uh, I went and uh, transferred. I took uh, nine months to extricate myself from the business. I transferred across. I did uh, commodity markets for uh, the last year or so. Um, and that's when I picked up the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss and that turned my head upside down and that turned my mindset upside down. I'm like, you know what? I think I've sold my soul to the devil long enough. I got four kids. I don't see I'm a lodger in my own home. I've painted myself into this corner. You know, I, I'm working for a company I don't even respect. I'm being forced to buy their stock through RSUs and I don't like, I see the inner workings of this company. I would not buy this company for the life of me, <laughs> but you're forcing me through. And not only that, um, you know, that that was all a new structured deal and sweetened by the fact that, well, the only way we can keep you on, this was across the board, right? After 08, the only way we can keep any of you on is if we restructure this way and then we can build the company. It was like basically the start of the buyback season and um, nothing, just nothing sat well anymore. And I was like, nah, this is just, so conflicting with with who i am and what i want my my kids to see me as and i was done it's just fun, spent it's a funny story because my exit story goes something very similar although it happened perhaps you know more immediate i went into work one day i was i was unsatisfied you know dissatisfied for a while but i had no plans of of walking away that day I put my suit on go to work and my my like manager a team leader whatever you call him was uh, in town that day because i was in beijing at the time and he was up from shanghai and he sits me down for our weekly you know mon you know monday meeting and uh i don't know what you know i woke up on the wrong side of the bed didn't eat my wheaties i don't know what it was but um he sat me down and said you know how are things going and i was like and they weren't going well because i was just i was not performing well because i i didn't want to almost you know i, I just wasn't into it and he was, you know, how are things going? What's, what's, go you know, give me the update. And I was just like, eh, you know, it's not going great. And he was like, oh, well, you know, well, tell me, tell me more what's going on. I was like, I just, just don't like, that. you know, not, I'm not, not into it. And he kind of went like, well, what, what does that mean? And I, I kind of looked around the room and I was like, I think I'm done with this, man. I think, I think I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> and he and you know what and he was like you know are, are you sure you know have you thought about this and i was like no but i'm pretty sure and so he was like all right well empty your desk um you know empty your desk and leave and, that, and that'll be it and so you know you know give me you know they have access to my email server and stuff and he was like we'll handle all the client turnover you know you you can you know basically fill up your box and and get out and I did. <laughs> That's how it ended for me. <laughs> Very unceremoniously. Come on in, Andy. What's, what's, I like that. what's the exit? I like, I like how you just knew, right? You know, there was, there was some, part, some part of your, uh, of your brain, some part of your mind that just like knew. I mean, most people would say it was your heart, but, you know, I'm, think... I'm always thinking about the, you know, the frontal, prefrontal cortex analytical piece and then the more base layers, the emotional, you know, the, well, Andy, the thing is, is like, I wonder, had he not been there for a face to face and it was just our regular call, 
would his questions have kind of landed the way they did? Because, you know, my probably fault and, you know, it's a blessing and a curse is I'm kind of brutally honest with myself and with anybody who, you know, asked me a direct question. So I wonder if I wasn't forced to articulate, you know, precisely how I was feeling at that time with someone face to face, would I have, would it have landed the same? And would I've just gone through the normal Monday call, like, eh, things are okay, blah, blah. You know, he's not around to really know how things are going. So I click and just go about my business. But, you know, there it was, you know, he asked me a direct question. I answered and then we were both kind of like, Hmm, that's probably <laughs> not a, a good it. answer. <laughs> there was just the inertial, you just had the inertial motion and he, he just provided the bump that you needed. Yeah, exactly. I think it's useful. A lot of, this is the story of a lot of people in the business and I'm speaking in general, which is they think it's exciting. There's some, you know, there's some, They've got some sort of fuzzy but attractive ideas about, I don't know, it's going to make me rich or it's going to give me access to new opportunities, you know, or there's, you know, there's just some cool mystique, some aura about it. And no doubt, you know, it'll be a good paycheck for now. And, you know, the, there is that promise of the big payout, right? There is the partnership at Goldman, 8 million a year. At least that was a statistic when I was back there. Right. And, um, but then you get, I think you were, Princey, I think you were maybe alluding to this, which is, you know, you get the, you get the overhead, you know, all of a sudden, I don't know, maybe you are buying a couple of those, you know, Bentleys that you had to park. Um, maybe you do have, you know, a few kids and, you know, you got to put them in private school because that's just what, you know, Wall Street guys do. And um, you got to get the nice house and you got to get the, you know, the expensive golf club membership. Because, you know, it's just, it's this fiat driven consumerist culture. And pretty soon, even though your income is high, this is for the, for the majority, right? I mean, yes, if you truly make it to the 8 million a year, let me tell you, I think, although those guys find a way to spend it, I think, uh, I think I would struggle to spend 8 million a year, but uh, I guess lucky for me, I don't have that problem, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but but for the you know for the rest of the of the army that supports the supports those generals, um, yeah, you you get into this. You, there, it's having quote unquote high income, you know, with the cost structure that comes with it and the spending culture. You find yourself. It's easy to find yourself on a treadmill very quickly, mm-hmm. and it's easy. Therefore, you think about the inertia. There's either the, oh, I've just done this for however long, and so I guess I'll just keep doing it. Or there's the, well, if I don't do this, you know, what's the alternative? What's my opportunity cost? What's the thing I'm going to do? And is that going to support, you know, the lifestyle to which I or my family have become accustomed? And that's also a dangerous trap. It, yeah, it is, man. I know exactly what you're talking about. And um, you do... You know, there's two things at play. You, you, you paint yourself into the corner and um, the sunk cost, the sunk cost is huge. Like, you know, that's all the shit you went through to get that seat and you're going to walk away. You're just going to give it up because someone's pissed you off or like, you know, it's. Um, but if you don't. Like, you know, up, Opportunity uh, opportunity cost is a perfect um, analogy. It's uh, 
Yeah, it's. And here's you, what. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was. You know, I was going to say like you. How do you want to measure success? That's that's what you got to ask yourself before you, you you kind of make any kind of decision, I suppose. Um, because you both probably felt this hugely when when you stepped away. Like the the loss of identity was for me it was massive it was like um huge it was like you know crushing almost um i couldn't now say i was a foreign exchange broker i i was and that had been my shtick for like 17 18 years now i was an unemployed bum with four kids and an irresponsible parent taking my kids out of formal education to go swanning off around the world who the hell do you think you are like you know it's um it's tough and I, I don't know whether you guys felt that as well when you when you walked away like you know how did you handle that loss of identity well you, 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 first, you yeah mine's quick but you point to an interesting point which i want to touch on too but i i never identified with the job so it was it was a nothing for me you know when i left it was a massive monkey off my back and i was just like you know kind of free but it, it does it does point to uh you know how insidious this ultimately behavior becomes because as you say like this this work and um becomes such a kind of ingrained in in who you are that that's another reason why it's it's hard to leave that's another reason why there's so much buy-in that's another reason why there's so little it's so unquestioning you know that this is me this is what i do how could and and so many people relate the two to each other i'm not a bad person therefore what i do cannot be bad sort of thing and you know and uh, i think not to generalize across the board but this this cause this because i wonder why a lot of people in the legacy system or i don't wonder but i like to think about the different reasons why you know they don't question their behavior more the system they engage in more um the impacts of the system at large that they're engaging in other solutions that may be outside the purview like it's very kind of horse blinders on and you know i think that's part of the reason because uh because it's become such an ingrained part of you it makes it more difficult to question because what are you going to question you don't you know are you going to question yourself you know i think a lot of people probably don't do that until maybe you actually do get ripped apart from it and you get ripped a little bit bare and you got to say well what am i if i'm not uh if i'm not you know the the forex trader daniel and I think, you know, I think that's ultimately a very healthy thing because, you know, we, we are the stories we tell ourselves and, you know, you, the better, the more convicted and the more confident and comfortable you can be with your story, probably the better, you know, happy and successful your life is going to be. Because when you, when you were just saying that just then, I was thinking, because you said, you know, loser, Dan, no job, kid, took kids out of school. And I, I get, you know, that's you, probably part of you was like, that's how people are perceiving me right now. I'm sure you had a, a bit more of a stronger compass at the time. Otherwise you wouldn't have made those decisions. But when you were saying that, I was like, man, that sounds fucking awesome. This guy, you know, got out of this thing that he hated this soul destroying work that ultimately, you know, probably shouldn't even exist cur currency, uh, you know, exchanging ultimately, especially in a, in a, the, the Bitcoin paradigm. Um, and he's taking his kids out of this ridiculous industrial schooling system that we have in order to ingrain them with better values, better education, you know, different perspectives on things like what a legend, you know, but it's, it's, so it's, it's all about perspective and what we tell ourselves. And I think 
the stories that the people that are still caught up in all that is that tell themselves is one of the prime reasons why it's so intoxicating because without that story, what are you? And that's a far bigger fear perhaps um, to some than just not having a, a paycheck come in for a few months until they sort things out. See, John, I knew you would cut, cut to the heart of it like a knife, <laughs> which is why I was so stoked to have both, you know, to put this together with both you guys. And, uh, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll put in my two cents too, which is at one end, you've got, you know, John, you figured out relatively soon, you know, that this just wasn't you basically, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and partly, or maybe largely because of, you know, ethical reasons. And then Prince Princey lived in the belly of the beast for a while, but he ultimately, you know, he ultimately made a decision and got his freedom. I, you know, started working at banks and then I worked, you know, on the investment side on what they call the buy side, which, which is not, you know, on the sell side in the banking system, but it's adjacent to it. Right. And it's very, interlinked and interdependent and incestually, you know, involved, right? You work at a private equity fund, you work at a hedge fund, you work at most any investment fund, you are doing business with the banking system and Wall Street on a daily basis. And I was lucky that I could move into an adjacent area of finance, which is wealth management, which is actually the same business that, uh, that made John vomit ultimately. <laughs> I am fortunate uh, enough to work uh, in a in a structure where I'm a fiduciary. I make a percent of assets. Basically, that's how I make my money, and so I don't get paid to sell. I do get paid to sell. Everybody gets paid to sell, right? I get paid to sell if it means you know bringing on a new client and bringing in new revenue, or if it means convincing you know a client to to move more of his or her assets to me except for usually I am managing primarily, you know, all the assets anyway. Um, but no business is unconflicted. And, um, and so, I, you know, I count myself lucky to work in a part of it uh, where, where I can, where at least I can sleep at night. I'm not going to say I'm any kind of, any kind of saint. I mean, I'm still a, I'm still a toll taking, you know, rent seeking, you know, I take a, a percent of assets and I can imagine the world we've all imagined where if I just wanted to save in sound money, well, then I'd have less, I wouldn't have to go chase return, you know, by, by owning this uh, portfolio of, uh, you know, of, uh, of return, at least so far return delivering assets. I'm talking about as just an individual now, not as the wealth manager. I wouldn't have to hire me, right? <laughs> so to speak. Right. Um and so, and you know, but so there, so it's you know it's a it's a mixed bag. I mean, I do in my transition personally. You know, I used to work for faceless institutions basically. Now at least I get to work with people, which is more fun for me. And because I'm not trying to you know jam them and sell them you know proprietary product that I get a percentage of. You know, that that makes me much much more comfortable. Um, but it's definitely, you know, it's definitely various gradations. I mean, there's, there's different, there's different levels and parts of this legacy financial system and some are more corrupt than others and some induce more bad behavior than others or have more conflicts than others. 
And uh, so in one sense, I've moved more toward the periphery. Um, but on the in the other sense, you know, I still have two feet in it. Um, and I am like, maybe like you guys, trying to explore this world of Bitcoin, trying to help, you know, trying to understand it myself, first of all, um, like we all are, and then trying to help others understand it and see, you know, see where it goes. Um, Andy, I think, you know, to you, what you just said, I, a a lot is made, I I think Bitcoin, a Bitcoin world will disrupt a lot of this industry that we've all been a part of, right? Like, and again, in particular, Daniel, in the currency world, like, obviously, if we have one global currency at some point in the future, then we're not going to need trading desks between currencies, right? That that will just be gone. And, and as you said, Andy, like the ultimate rent seek is that, you know, just because of the, that you are the toll between changing one current piece of paper effectively for another, you get to take a cut of that. And, you know, everyone outside of that kind of loses, um, you know, hopefully that goes away and rightfully so. But there's still going to be obviously many instances where, you know, if you're a professional in one domain, you specialize in one domain and you accrue surplus as a result of that, and you want to generate yield, then you may very well want someone who can help you with that, an expert who can, who, you know, who has the knowledge and the time to do that on your behalf because you're busy accumulating wealth in another area. I don't think any of us have a problem with that. And, you know, I I think what Bitcoin is just going to do is up, every necessitate everyone upping their game right because you know some people say oh well why would people invest in a deflationary currency it's like well because they'll want more yield like yeah it's great if you know if if bitcoin is one percent two percent whatever deflationary as it may be your purchasing power increases without much work in in the currency well that that's wonderful but that doesn't mean that everyone in the world is going to be satisfied with 2% or whatever it is a year. You know, some people are going to want to take more risk. Where are they in the, on the timeline or the arc of their life and career? You know, there's all these different considerations that like economic calculation is still going to happen and ambition is still going to drive people and greed will still drive people. It will just all be, you know, tethered or conform around a far healthier system so that the incentives are, are better aligned between everybody that's playing in this in this game. So, you know, I, I think your profession in particular, Andy, will, will persist. And, you know, I, I think in your particular case, I think it's great that we have people like yourself in the in that old world that are able to get the message across to people that won't listen to anybody but, right? Like some people that you deal with, they're not going to listen to me. Oh man, he left the industry long ago. Now he's a bum. Like what, you know, they're not going to listen to Daniel. They're not going to listen to, uh, you know, any of the podcasters or personalities. No, because in their mind, this type of knowledge comes from a very specific channel and you, you uniquely represent an opportunity to get the message through that channel. And so, you know, I always advocate or, or, or say that there's so many different doorways into this and there's so many, unique perspectives and they're all valid and we should all, you know, do our best to express them because different people listen to different people, different perspectives and and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's good that we have kind of like a covert agent in you in, in the, in the legacy system, but who is obviously talking about, uh, you know, Bitcoin and who's introducing clients to Bitcoin in a manner that perhaps few of us could do in a similar way. 
Yeah, I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome, Andy, what you're doing. But I don't think we have, did we hear your exit story, um, Andy? Because <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure we did. Now, I remember, I'm sure there was like, didn't you get in super early one morning and just take a shit on Paulson's desk and walk out? Like, <laughs> That's exactly what I did. No, man, look, I, uh, well, this is what I was sort of dancing around earlier. And by the way, you guys are, you guys are kind. I like to think I'm a, I'm a secret agent uh, too. And uh, hopefully I'm not a double agent. Um, but, uh, you know, the truth is, you know, I try to present myself as, as what you described, which is like kind of the bridge or one of, one of the doing my tiny small part to be a bridge between the legacy and the new, and I'm still learning and, you know, I'm doing whatever I can, but, but yeah, as far as, you know, jumping out, I never jumped out. Right. Like you're like, what's your exit story? And my answer is, well, like I'm kind of still in, right. I never got out. I, yes, I went from the, you know, the belly of the beast investment bank to private equity, which is, you know, where a lot of people, they leave investment banks, they go work for private equity and they still do a lot of business together. And, you know, private equity industry doesn't exist without the whole debt funding, leverage loan, junk bond, you know, system that, that feeds its, uh, you know, that feeds the private equity beast. And then I went to work, you know, at hedge fund, which is more public markets, but, you know, still intimately involved. And then, yes, I went to work with my, you know, my family firm um, and, uh, you know, do wealth management. So there were, there were sort of steps along the way, but, you know, was there ever, you know, I'm still, you know, that's still my, it's still my full-time job. I mean, yeah, I'm taking, you know, a long lunch here basically to, uh, to talk to you guys, but that's, that's still what I do. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an area where I'm comfortable enough with the incentives, you know, and the ethics of it, but you know, I'm still, I'm still a toll taker, right? Are you, um, <laughs> I never got is out. Your, <laughs> is your, is your title like CRPO, uh, like chief red pill officer at uh, <laughs> your firm? <laughs> you know? Well, look, as you know, as you know, since, since you asked now, I'll, I'll, I'll use the shill opportunity, right? I did take on one title for Swan Bitcoin, oh, you know, right. which has, a, which mm. has, a, has an auto, sat stacking you know system to basically suck fiat money out of your bank account put it straight into bitcoin and then and then also automatically push it into cold storage and uh and so so that's uh, you know that's one title i have as head of institutional for swan but yeah as far as you know my activities in uh in my primary job my day job uh yeah i'm just a no doubt I'm trying to I'm trying to red pill as many people on the on the institutional asset side as possible because as you well know that's a you know call it 10 trillion dollar of assets right are are for better or worse directed by you know guys like me wealth managers who who do portfolio allocation and asset allocation so yeah I am trying to I'm trying to red pill one by one uh, Sunday night, I was on the beach with uh, with Brecky uh, with Brecky von Bitcoin, um, and uh, his dad. He's been working on his dad for I don't know years now, probably. And so he, uh, he uh, you know surreptitiously set up this this meeting and uh, you know parachuted me down into uh, into a Venice, and I gave him the spiel, and I you know I I gave him a copy of the book and signed it for him. And, uh, and yeah, I think maybe, maybe we, maybe we got him over the hump, but, uh, yeah, it was sort of a, it was sort of a special ops, uh, special ops maneuver. And, uh, I don't know if it worked, but, but I'm, but I'm trying. 
in your circles, in your network, I, I'm, I asked you this question, I'm sure, when we uh, did our original podcast together. Um, when, but the, the answer might have changed now. I, I know you kind of avoid the cocktail parties and whatever else and the networking with other wealth managers and, you know, but I'm sure from time to time, obviously not in the last two months, um, there's, there's whispers in the wind or there'll be an odd phone call or there'll be a, a gathering of, of some sort. Are you still like, you know, that, that weird Bitcoin guy that's still trying to shill his customers down the line and, um, you know, they're kind of looking at you suspiciously. You know, what's the vibe? You know, it, it, it must be weird. So I'm going to be on, So honestly, and this is one of the interesting things that we ask ourselves every day, right? I got my day job. And then the question is, how else do I want to spend my time, right? Well, I want, you know, there's family, obviously. I got two kids. Um, but I also want to spend my time on Bitcoin. Okay, how do I do that? And what you said is actually accurate. I have spent almost no time sort of interacting, mingling, you know, directly, you know, networking with others of my peers, let's say in the business. Every free time, every free minute I have, I am instead shilling my book, uh, doing podcasts with you gentlemen, trying to get the word out there. And part of it is I sort of made, I don't want to say made a decision, but I had a little bit of a realization, which was, you know, okay, if I want to get the word out about this book, it would be great to sort of get it adopted or get interest in the Bitcoin community, as well as, you know, what you describe, which is, you know, try and infiltrate, you know, the legacy system. And one of the ways to do that has been actually work with some of the, you know, Bitcoin product producers who are trying to serve the wealth management community which by the way, we're trying to do at Swan also, we're you know, developing products in that regard. And so that's been a little bit of my surreptitious angle or my, or my, you know, my, my sneak attack is you know, getting on you know, web, webinars, you know, doing educational sort of town hall discussions of Bitcoin is, you know, hey, here, hey, hey, look at this, you know, look at this strange specimen over here, this Andy Edstrom guy, he's a, he's a legacy finance guy, wealth manager who, you know, wrote a book about Bitcoin, like, what, you know, what kind of, what kind of weird anomaly is that? And um, so it's been a little bit of that. But it's interesting, sometimes I ask myself, oh, should I just go, should I go evangelize? I don't know if evangelize is the right word, but like, should I go, you know, into should I be more involved with the wealth management community? And it's something I co I'm considering, you know, trying to make happen is is spending a little time. And I don't know if that's, you know, trying to get a speaking spot at conferences. That's probably the highest leverage, you know, angle is regular way wealth management or finance conference. You know, can I get on the docket there? I've gotten on the docket for you know Bitcoin, you know, conferences, but but I think that would be the, maybe the, the way to go about it. But, but if you have any ideas in that regard, I'm, I'm all ears. Well, the first thing we need is like uh, conferences to mass buy your book and leave them on people's chairs. Airdrop. I mean, look, I, you, you guys, like you guys are great doing great work. You guys are getting the word out there. You know, I don't, I don't know who your audiences are. I imagine it's more Bitcoin enthusiasts. I mean, I really, I enjoy all the stuff you guys, um, you guys 
put, you know, put out. I mean, Vallis will tell you that I was, I was chasing him down to do his pod uh, whenever we did it, I think, you know, a few months ago. And uh, Princey, uh, Princey approached me um, and was very persuasive and I'm really glad you did it. So, you know, I, um, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm hopeful that what we, another angle is, yeah, these regular wave finance pods. And there's some of that where they're, you know, bringing on Bitcoin guests. I mean, there's guys like, I don't know, Preston Pish or, you know, sort of regular, somewhat regular finance adjacent guys that are, that are doing stuff. And, you know, I wouldn't mind uh, getting involved in that too. Yeah. I think, you know, the name of the game here is Bitcoin, if we're correct about all of this is going to be so large, impactful. So such a big part of everybody's lives that the real name of the game is what do you like, what do you enjoy doing the most in this space? You know, where, what comes naturally to you in this space? And even if you don't have the precise answer right now, like even if you just have an inkling, like that's probably the direction you should start going. And then it's just a matter of, you know, tweaking things along the way. Like, you know, if you wanted to speak at normal conferences and you, you do it and you're like, ah, that didn't feel right. Or it's like, oh, I got a lot of pushback and I pushed back even harder. And that was great. And like, oh, I think... I think a speaking like circuit, you know, getting on the speaking circuit might be actually something that I really enjoy that is beneficial for me. Maybe you get paid for it and it's beneficial for the space like that. You know, I think at least as far as I'm concerned, trying to have like the clarity right at the outset and you're said like this is going to be my thing is almost impossible. And if it is <laughs> Well, that's Zeus uh, whining right next to me. But, uh, um, but if it is possible, like, <laughs> guess what I'm saying? Sorry. You're good, You're good can, man. Can, I, can you I hear can him? Hear you clearly, I can't hear. Okay, I okay. He's, he's making large, uh, large <laughs> whining noises. I'll get him out of the room in a second. But anyways, <laughs> my point is just, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it seems narrow right now, I think, in, in, in many ways, you know, just kind of what's available in the space. And it's up to the people that want it to be more and expect it to be more to broaden it out via their actions and via their interests and kind of aligning with uh, their own truth and creativity. So, um, but one of the things I did want to ask you, uh, I want to, sorry, let me cut you off though. Cause I want to augment that statement, which is, yeah. I agree a hundred percent. I'm still learning and trying stuff. You know, I was, I wasn't doing anything on Twitter, you know, six months ago. Now I do some stuff, you know, been podcasting you both credit to both you guys, you know, Princey, uh, came out of nowhere, like a, freight train right and you know has had some awesome guests and um, has been put, putting out great content and you john have been experimenting you know you were doing uh you've been you were doing the pod format and now you're doing the live stream format and i think this is you know all this stuff which you guys are doing this is what the space needs you know try different stuff see what's fun see what sticks you know see what gets traction and uh, experiment. So yeah. anyway, I cut you off. Well, all I wanted to ask was, I, I first of all, congrats on the uh, the head of institutional position at Swan. Um, but what kind of what kind of work are you doing? Like, what's the role of approaching institutional clients for, um, you know, an auto stacking business? I know you said they're going to be developing more stuff, but what what kind of work are you doing in that capacity right now? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a Twitter bot that just shills Swan. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, that's actually a, a part of, a part of the, a part of what I do. Um, 
I don't want to, there's probably limits to, you know, like how specific I can get in terms of, you know, where the product's going to go and what it's going to be. Yeah. But, but suffice to say, we're trying to, uh, now I'm hearing the, I'm hearing the, the background noise. <laughs> okay. Things you just need to pee. Okay. Give me one sec, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but suffice to say that, uh, you know, I am trying to do my small part to help Swan uh, develop and roll out a product that makes it easy for wealth managers to help their clients put money into Bitcoin. That's the, yeah. that's the short answer. And, you know, I, I think, you know, what we were talking about earlier about uh, people like trying to figure out how do I enter the Bitcoin space? You know, what, what, what are my skill sets? Um, I had no idea I was going to start a podcast, uh, a podcast like uh, two or three months ago. No clue. Uh, I'm part of a, a telegram group um you know like these the Bitcoiner gang and there's guys in there you know they just love making memes that's it that's their shtick meme the hell out of it you know we're, we're going to be in a meme war with with mainstream media and they don't stand a chance they do not stand a chance you know because we have these guys the creativity that is um you know john you you were talking with uh Sabatas last night like the movies that are going to come out from these guys, it just, um, they're going to blow people away. And uh, it's going to be, you know, there's, there's different ways you can enter in the, into, into the Bitcoin space. And you, I, I think what people have to understand is um, you, you just do it. You just go for it. And you don't expect anything from it. You know, none of us are getting paid to, to do this kind of stuff. Um, uh, well, yeah, I laughed. You know, I chuckled earlier when John was talking about, you know, getting getting uh, speaking gigs at conferences and, and maybe making a little money. I don't think anyone I'm not expecting anyone <laughs> to pay me, pay me for my, con my conference yet, appearances yet, I've done so, so far have been 100 percent gratis. <laughs> it's, all, it's all free until it's not, baby. It'll uh, come. I mean, uh, it'll come. As a pod, as a podcaster, you, you get the old affiliate link. Um, you know, I get thrown a few shekels to, to shield coin floor. Um, you know, hats off to Obi and the team over there because, you know, that they, they just do that to, to purely support the grassroots of Bitcoin. That's what that's what they're doing it for. And they, you know, the podcasters, they'll do it for free in, in most cases. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the, the higher levels like um, like Peter and Stefan uh, and, and Pomp and those guys that have been doing it for a lot longer and have the audience, then you expect the contracts to roll in for the big bucks. But I don't know. How do you feel about that, John? Have you ever thought about that? Like, you know, um, do you ever want to get tied down to like a, an exchange or something that's, you know, going to ask you to read out a script or, you know? Yeah, well, I think we spoke about this once before. I've been approached a few times and my uh, thinking on it is just that, you know, unless it's a, a really sweet deal that requires uh, greater thought, you know, I, I, I enjoy the freedom of being able to do what I want, but also, um, you know, not having to associate with uh, a company that it's not even that they're bad people, of course. It's just like, maybe I just don't really want to associate with it, you know, for whatever Valis, reason. Valis cannot be bought. Valis <laughs> not for sale. Don't even try. So, so um, you know, and... Uh, you've got some good, you've got some Bitcoin only Canadian firms out there. You yeah, know, sure, whoa. sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I think... I don't know. I, I'm, it's not on my, it's not something I think a lot about right now. And I think that's mainly just because it's not why I started doing it in the first place. And, uh, 
if, if the time came and, and, you know, someone that I really was, you know, company and a service that I, I was really into, they wanted to be kind of, they wanted to cooperate in some capacity, sponsor a show or, or do whatever, then I'd, I'd look into it for sure. But it's just, I think I said this when we, when we first talked about it, it's just not, I'm more, more interested in just making the content, having the conversations. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, like I said at the time, nobody's against stacking a few more sets, right? But it's not like a, you know, a super pressing concern. And um, so given that, you know, not that I, not that doing so would necessarily mean you have to sell out in any way, but you know, unless it really fits, then why do it? That's the whole point of this medium and this, the kind of freedom that both this medium and Bitcoin provides. It's like you get to do the things that you want to do, associate with the people that you want to associate with, promote and highlight the brands and services and business and people that you want to do that for and not do it for the ones that you don't. So, you know, I'm sure the good people of Canada, they, they want to use shake pay and at the same time, see you shake your ass and that, like, you know, some sats <laughs> fall down and like, you know, 10% of sats go to JV and uh, everyone's happy with that. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's, I haven't spoken. I know the, the CEO, but we haven't spoken about that kind of stuff, but I love their service. I really do. I mean, I make, to be honest, shaking that phone every day and getting, you know, at the moment I get like 8,900 sats when I shake the phone is this, the highlight of my day. It's just so exciting to be able to shake your phone and get a few free sats. I don't, you know, it's just oddly satisfying. And then I also stack. So I, you know, I get the double whammy at the same time, which I appreciate, but, um, I fucking, Andy, what was, what were you talking about before uh, you asked me that question? I was good. I had, a, I had something I wanted to ask you. Trying to, I don't know, I'm trying to remember. I just want to say that, you know, to anyone listening or watching, I'm grateful that, you know, that you're, you're even, that you're willing to spend any time at all, you know, uh, listening to what, uh, to what any of us uh, have to say. The reason that I contacted you two guys about, you know, this idea and, and having this, this chat um, is because I, you know, I know you guys are, not only some of the least, you know, conflicted, I mean, everyone in this industry, in any industry has some conflicts of interest and they're always shilling something and, you know, God knows I do. But, uh, but you guys, I can tell are, are, are doing it for the love of it. I mean, you guys are learning and having fun at the same time and, and, uh, you know, helping people learn. So I think that's awesome. And I'm thank grateful to you guys for doing it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andy. And thank you for remind what you just said, reminded me what I was, um, gonna say but you, you were talking kind of about that point and and I, daniel was saying about the uh, i only caught halfway through but the group of uh, the bitcoiners who are doing a lot of meme work and that kind of stuff and it's like how how can you stop something where people are incentivized by something other than the financial return or at least that's complimentary because if you hold Bitcoin, then, you know, the work you put into promoting it, strengthening it, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is indirect compensation and indirect incentive. But, you know, whether it's a group of BTC pay server, you know, the core, core devs, you know, Andy, you said to me, like, you know, you wrote the book out of love, not because you expected to make much money out of it. Probably it's probably at a loss, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Oh yeah. And so the same with podcasting and everything. Like how can you stop something where the individuals who are engaging in it are so motivated that they're willing to accept the opportunity cost of devoting their time and financial and energy resources to it uh, without direct, you know, financial gain. How can you, how can you hope to stop something like that? 
paradoxically Mises would be, you know, absolutely like, you know, out of his head, mad at all of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The economists are spinning in their graves. <laughs> no, you guys have that. missed the whole point. Like value your time. <laughs> I love that framing. Uh, I love that framing, John. I mean, I had a conversation with my wife this weekend and it was along the lines of, you know, how, how do I want to spend my time? And the answer is, you know, I want to spend, as I said, I want to spend time with family. Obviously, I want to be with her. I want to be with the kids. Um, I want to do my day job. I want to serve my clients. Um, you know, uh, that's that's the primary goal. Um, and besides, you know, paying the bills, um, I also get some satisfaction basically about, you know, around helping clients. But then, you know, if I want, if I'm interested in this Bitcoin thing, you know, what what am I going to do about it, you know? you know, what's, what's the goal? And the goal is learning more and helping other people learn more and have some fun doing it. As you say, it's not like, you know, I don't know, my cat, including the excellent editing, you know, shout out to Beth Rashbaum and, uh, <laughs> you know, basically including the, the help I had with the book. I mean, I'm, I'm out of pocket, you know, five figures um, for that. So I'm well short of selling enough copies, you know, basically to even cover my cash costs, forget about the time spent writing it. Right. But yeah, it's, you know, it's a labor of love and um, it was, uh, it was gratifying doing it. And like I say, I'm just grateful that anyone's, uh, that anyone's willing to read it. And yeah, it's a, it's a passion. It's, as you say, it's, a, it's a, something people are passionate about and you, you can't, uh, you can't, that's hard to beat. That's hard to, uh, that's a force that's hard to stop. Right. Um, so can yeah. I, can I just jump in then Andy and, um, to bring this all the way back to the beginning where we started talking about the Goldman slides. Now, sure. someone was paid a lot of cash to put that bullshit together. <laughs> you paid out of your own pocket to put some very deep research together. This is like the dichotomy of the business, right? This is like, you know, what, what was spat out of, I mean, who, I don't want to be too hard on the, the, the person that, that wrote that because they would have probably been, you know, just thrown that on a Monday morning stand up, like, right, you go write a Bitcoin uh, thesis and uh, I want minimum 15 slides and there's got to be this, 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 and this, and they, off they trot and do it. Yep. And they're getting paid to do that. And it's complete nonsense. And and try, to, try to avoid speaking too favorably about things that we don't necessarily have our fingers in. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was the that was the ultimate. That was the last point, right? Yeah, on the on the. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The work order. So yeah, I mean, but what do you think, Andy? Like, when you read that, um, you and I were straight onto DMs with each other. Have you seen this? Like, have yeah. you actually like seen this? That that. The level of non-research that went into it was tangible, and I think they come up with one slide had like um, you know four four aspects of money or something. And there's like fourteen in your book. Um, it's just that that I mean that sums the whole thing up for me, like right there. Agreed, and I'll, I'll tell you, I guess slight spoiler alert or maybe teaser. But one thing I'm kicking around now is I'm, is I'm kind of sketching out the idea for an article. And the article, the thrust of it, I don't want to give it away, but the thrust of it is on, along the lines of, as of a certain point in time, 
this was a reasonable reaction, right? Dumping on Bitcoin and dismissing it was a reasonable reaction. However, it has become clearer than ever that at minimum, Bitcoin is digital gold and will take share from the gold market. And as that happens, it's going to go up, you know, multiples in value. And not only that, but it's going to be significant market cap. And the framework that I want to apply, and I'm sure others have done it before, but I think it's timely, is there are certain other investments, I won't name particular names, that have driven the total return of the index or a broader portfolio in the last you know, five, 10 years. And having zero allocation to one, of, one or a basket of those 15 years ago, like before it was totally clear what the potential was, having zero allocation was the norm as a wealth manager. Today, having zero allocation to certain, certain of those unnamed high-performing assets, uh, you're fired, <laughs> right? Basically, you're out of business if you, if you missed the boat on a certain of these, uh, of these investment names. And that's where I think Bitcoin is going. In other words, I think we're actually at that inflection point where when I have conversations, when my colleagues you know, at other firms have conversations with their clients, and they're having to explain why they have zero allocation to Bitcoin, they're going to get fired. Good luck. <laughs> exactly. And you've, you've, been, you've been spot on this uh, idea too. I know, Daniel. Um, and, and now we're actually, I think, at that inflection point. I don't know if that inflection point was you know, a year ago or is today or will be you know, six months or a year from now. But yeah, it's passing every day that goes by it just becomes clearer that uh, having zero allocation to this thing is uh, is going to be a real black eye in the future. If you're if you're managing someone's money and you didn't put it, you know, put some in into it, it it's madness. It honestly is. If you are if you are in the business of managing someone's money, you do not have some kind of tiny uh, like exposure to this. It's like get the, you, know, you may as well start counting your days because you're, you're going to get phone calls upon phone calls like why the hell like what were you thinking why weren't you in it what were you doing um and people you know even if they ask their you know i've got a couple of friends now that that call me up and they say oh, i'm going to see my financial advisor and blah 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 you know or one particular friend sold out of a company sitting on a handsome amount of, of pounds um trying my my hardest to red pill him and uh you know he's like well i'm going to see the wealth manager at the bank i'm like ask him Ask him his view on Bitcoin, and I want to know. I want to know his answer. And if he doesn't if concede, he, even like if it, if it's a total outright no, then you should run away. You know, right. because that's the litmus test now right, for anyone right. listening. That is the litmus test. If it's just they, if it gets poo pooed immediately, you know they're not putting the work. They're they're just being lazy. They're not trying. They don't care. It's just like a, the biggest red flag. It's you know we we were, we've been talking about um, the kind of group think behavior in the legacy industry that we all spent some time in. And I think it's, you need to be careful to attribute single events uh, when you're looking at complex, dynamic, global, you know, markets. But I think just in that context, Daniel, if you were just describing that example um, and in your industry, Andy, and actually, you know, I'd love to hear your comments on this, but I think the Paul Tudor Jones move is going to end up being, kind of a you know a 
watershed. A watershed moment for this because all those other guys who idolize uh, Paul Tudor Jones, all the people on Wall Street in London and Singapore, Hong Kong, wherever, um, and I, I knew a lot of them, and I would have these conversations, and it would be so easy to cast me aside because I'm out of the business. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm into unconventional whatever, you know, I'm not, you're not your average Joe sort of thing. And, you know, they know how things work. They, you know, that's bullshit. This is the real stuff. And they all just feed into to each other's opinions and beliefs on that matter. And so it insulates themselves and themselves. And it's hard to penetrate that. But, you know, basically their idol or one of the, the, the you know, the titans of the industry to come out and say, you know, um, he's not, he's obviously not coming out and saying he's a, a diehard Bitcoin fan. He's just saying it makes sense. You know, it makes sense to have some allocation. You bet on the fastest horse. You know, we look at this over the last 11, 12 years. All of those guys now are going to have cover fire to whether it's with themselves, with their clients, with their organizations to say, like, they're not going to so easily shit on each other because, well, Paul Tudor Jones did it. You know, yeah. so what do you call him, Paul Tudor Jones, an idiot? What are you better than Paul Tudor Jones? No, of course not. So I think that's going to really sway the opinion of those hardline legacy peeps that just ignored it uh, and laughed at it while they did so and make them, you know, stop, think twice, and then be way more open to the idea of including some in, a, in an allocation of some kind. Yeah, spot on. And I'm just going to riff on, on that. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, preview the thing I mentioned I'm working on. And so, so listen to this, tell me what you think. So number one, it doesn't generate cash flow. Number two, it's just one competitor among many in the field. Number three, it's a bubble. Number four, not that many people use it. Number five, it's used for crime. Okay, what am I talking about? Of course I'm talking about, it's the year 2005, and I'm talking about Amazon stock. Amazon, one, generates virtually no cash flow. Two, still has plenty of online retail competitors. Three, has suffered a bubble and a bust in which the stock lost over 90% of its value. Four, has only a few million monthly active users. And five, is regularly used to evade tax, specifically state sales tax, okay? This is the framework, one of many, that I'm applying to Bitcoin today. Wind back the clock. Imagine you're a wealth manager explaining to your client in the year 2020 that you've had zero allocation to Amazon stock over the last 15 years, right? Since 2005. That I think, you know, some of those, I just gave some examples of, you know, the ways people dismiss Bitcoin today. But I think this is the conversation that people are going to be having with wealth managers, you know, 15 years from now, probably even sooner, probably five years from now. And it's the, you know, it's the same uh, type of sort of short-sighted uh, criticisms and dismissals of a very promising internet-based network effect-driven enterprise that's likely to be worth far more in the future than people realize today, and they're 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 missing the you know they're missing the forest for the trees. Did you see the the clickbait article in Forbes today? No. Bitcoin goes to $1 million in Forbes today. Drops. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, it's, it's happening. It's, it's oh, I gonna, did. I think I did. Maybe I did see that one. Maybe I did. See that one. Mainstream media are going to start picking up on this 
it's going to start, you know, creeping into what we hope is going to, because, all right, who's the biggest audience for 10 o'clock news? Uh, I don't know. Good Boomers, question. man. Boomers, yeah. <laughs> for sure. I was thinking they're in bed by 10 o'clock, but that's probably wrong. No, no. They go to sleep on a couch between 8 and 9.55 and wake up for a cup of coffee and the most negative shit they've ever seen in their lives for 40 minutes and then moan about why they can't sleep. It's the boomers <laughs> are going to start seeing this shit, right? That, that It's going to happen. And um, I just, it, for Father's Day, my, my Father's Day gift to my father was Bitcoin for dummies. Um, nice. Be, I, I didn't send him your book, Andy. I'm sorry. Um, I just think it's... Sorry, next time. Yeah. I, the reason why I bought um, iPhone for dummies for my mom, because um, she bought herself an iPhone finally. So, you know, I, I, and she was raving about the book. Like she thought it was a bit of a joke, but now, oh no, no, this is... So now they've got that sitting on the coffee table, Bitcoin for dummies. And Perfect. I know at some point over the next six months, you know, that angry newscaster on News at 10 between some of the bongs is like, Bitcoin, it's new all-time highs. He's like, oh, that's a Bitcoin, that thing that Ben does on the, on the recordings. You know, what's what? Let me have a look at that like? book, see what's going on now. <laughs> yeah. Wait, more, 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 please, more accent, John. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew I was going to get shit for that. Um, <laughs> more John Vallis doing British accent, please. More cowbell. I'm no, I'm, I'm no guy swan doing the, doing the voice of an 18, you know, someone from a few hundred years ago, but... Um, that was, that's 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 Brecky, isn't it? That does the well the when case. guys narrating and someone includes like a quote from Thomas oh, Paine does, or something. He? Yes. He, he, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He, I, he I, I did I did think the English accent was going to be way better. Clearly, I haven't been in the UK for for far too long. <laughs> but uh, but Andy, I'd like to know also from you know you obviously over the last few months, I presume you've been talking with your your clients quite a bit and trying to explain everything that's going on. Um, and you know, nobody has a crystal ball, but do you see us rolling it? Like, I guess, how do you see things from here? And then also in relation to, to Bitcoin, like, and I presume when you're talking to your clients about Bitcoin, you ask them to have a longer term time horizon and you know, you're not looking oh, yeah. at the next three to six months or whatever, but you know, it's if for, in my mind, I, right now I see two options. We just kind of roar right out of this, you know, COVID stuff. And with all the money sloshing around, you know, we go into a, you know, a pretty robust recovery, I guess you would call it. Um, the other option, and it seems equally difficult to avoid this one, is that we kind of get the, the rolling insolvencies over the next, you know, two, three, four months because of all the businesses that have been so affected by this and you know whether it's the government lifelines or whether it's their own cash reserves that are just drying up and you know so the support is withdrawn reality comes back uh you know to haunt them and uh and businesses just don't survive and how much of an impact does that have on the broader economy markets bitcoin etc what 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 are you telling your clients these days okay here's my two cents um March was pretty, pretty hair raising. Uh, and April, I spent a lot of time in March and April talking to clients, as you suggested. And obviously, since uh, stocks, you know, and risk assets have recovered a lot, in fact, a surprising amount, in my opinion, um, you know, it's been, it's been less hairy lately, but but uh, that was those were some pretty stressful, you know, six weeks or a couple of months there. Okay, the message I've been delivering to clients 
and that I still am delivering to clients is in my 17 year career, I have never felt as uncertain about the future still as I do now. In other words, basically, you know, we try to talk about risk and we try to draw probability distribution of potential outcomes, you know, and do scenario analysis and, and give our best guess probability weighted at what's going to happen. And I feel like I, you know, I can't even draw the distribution. Like the range of outcomes is just mind blowing. Um, I think most people uh, prefer to have their, you know, advisor have a, you know, a clear story. Everybody always wants a story. They always want their, you know, advisor or whoever they're relying on to, uh, to tell them, tell them what the future is going to be. And uh, I can't do that. It's, it's, um, I'm less certain for the future at the moment and in the last couple of months than, than I ever have been. So that's first disclaimer. Um, second disclaimer is still, I try to think about, you know, scenarios and what you describe. How bad will the uh, bankruptcy wave or the insolvency wave be? Um, how much can they mitigate that by just printing tons of money and by the, by the money printer going in, you know, perpetuity and at and, and levels we've never seen, which they've already done and, and, you know, they may continue to do. And so, and then, you know, how bad is the pandemic? Do we get a, you know, do we get a, uh, herd immunity or do we get a vaccine and how long does it take and how much do businesses open up and do we do testing and we have rolling lockdowns or people just say screw it and let it burn. And, you know, how's it happened in this part of the world and that part of the country. And I mean, so many, so many unknowns against all that, as we know, TikTok next block, Bitcoin continues to, to do its thing. And the more of the money printing that goes on, you know, the more people that, you know, the incremental person that listens to this pod reads, you know, that Forbes clickbaity article, you know, picks up someone's, you know, book, whatever, the more people start to say, oh, if they can just print infinite money, why do I pay taxes? What does this all mean? You know, um, does, is monetary, modern monetary theory really a thing? So I think you have the ongoing learning and adoption. Obviously we've had the having historically that's usually been bullish. Um, I have taken, I've always been of two minds as a, let's say investor in Bitcoin. One is, I don't know when it's going to pop. And I don't want to miss those updates. I don't want to miss those green candles, right? Because you never know when they're going to come. And the only thing sadder than, than an Andy Edstrom who's lost a lot of money uh, investing in Bitcoin is an Andy Edstrom who thinks, you know, he saw Bitcoin and didn't have the exposure and, you know, missed the huge upward move. That's the, that's the, that's the worst uh, potential outcome for me and also for my clients on their behalf. So I definitely want to have exposure. I don't even try to make timing projections. Um, the pitch and the explanation in terms of the bigger picture to my clients is, is, hard, is hard money assets, right? Um, my firm's been around for 30 years, more than 30 years. And until a few years ago, we never had an allocation to gold, right? We were zero allocation to gold for, I don't know, 28 years or something. And we finally made that step because we saw, you know, the likely resolution of the excess debt and the printing of money. Of course, this was before COVID, which just basically accelerated everything. And so, and so part of that hard money asset allocation, which is its own allocation, its own, you know, bucket now, a key component of that is Bitcoin. And yeah, we take a long view, 
We think that facts and circumstances about debt and printing of money uh, suggest that hard money assets will do well. Probably Bitcoin will do the best, um, but we also have you know allocations to other hard money assets. And I don't even try to to set you know the the timeline on it. I'm I'm intrigued, and I really want the stock to flow you know model to be right. And some days I'm a skeptic, and then some days I look at the chart and I say it's playing out again. It played out, you know, in the first halving and the second halving. And, you know, it's, uh, it just seems to be going in that direction. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if that's how it plays out. But, uh, in the meantime, I'm happy to have exposure myself and on behalf of my clients in uh, the hardest money the world's ever known. And did you mind if I ask, um, like in a new client comes in, uh, institution, who a high net worth individual, whatever, and let's say you know they've um, they've agreed that Bitcoin is something they want as part of their portfolio. And let's mm-hmm. say you know you you do the math and you, you you look at everything and you're like right okay then you need to commit um, let's commit fifty grand, just pulling a number out the out the sky. Um, do you then just go, bam, let's get into it? Or are you going to use that 50 grand to buy a, a chunk now and then DCA the rest? What, I mean, because you got, now you've got this, this swan tie-in and DCA is obviously, for, yep. for the listeners or viewers, dollar cost average where you buy daily or weekly or, you know, what's, what's the play for, for somebody that, that, that's looking there? Because that's you don't want very, to miss that green candle day, but, you know. It's a very incisive question. Um, and it actually gets to the heart of what does the right institutional product look like? And my view at the moment is that it's a hybrid of both. It's the, yes, I want immediate exposure now. Because as you say, I'm, I don't want to miss that green candle. And I don't know when it's going to happen. But depending on facts and circumstances, I probably want to be accumulating into it over time. So I think it's actually a hybrid. It's I have my, you know, accumulation, you know, steady accumulation core position piece. And then I have I may have my component where depending on facts and circumstances, you know, I'm willing to part with, I'm willing to add, let's say, you know, rapidly, depending on facts and circumstances, or I'm I'm willing to pair it back again, depending on, you know, on where we are. You know, am I going to hold out forever and cling to every single, you know, Satoshi for every client, you know, if and when it's 18 months from now, you know, and Bitcoin's at 250K, I might be trimming a little, (laughs) (laughs) if I'm honest. (laughs) I still want to have that core position. And if it's made that run, it will then be a very significant part of the portfolio, right? Just by virtue of, you know, going you know, 10 or 20 or, you know, 50 X, whatever the number is. And so, so the, so then the portfolio management uh, or the portfolio manager in me, the asset allocator in me says, okay, if it's, if it's got become really outsized, I may have to trim it back. But again, that depends on facts and circumstances. It depends on the client's needs. It also depends on, you know, tax treatment, you know, is this IRA money? Is it, you know, taxable money? So yeah, it's all those things. Andy, I got. I want to ask you something about that. And gents, uh, I think out of 
Princey, you're, you're probably getting pretty late over there. So we, we, we may want to consider winding this down soon. But yeah. um, Andy, so in let's take Venezuela as an example. And uh, just as a little bit of context, I sometimes wonder how much asset allocator, inst- allocators, institutions care about sound money at all, right? Because they, you know, why care about preservation of capital when their goal is to actually get yield off of capital, i.e. go into equities or something else, right? So, and when I don't need to do that, I really only need something to transition between one and the two and at, you know, two, three, four, 5% inflation per annum currency is absolutely suitable for that because I'm not in it long enough to give a damn, right? So, you know, why is sound money of that much import to those types of people? And then when you kind of combine that with the, you know, very, a possible circumstance that at some point in developed markets, we may see something like Venezuela, perhaps not, and hopefully not to the same extent, but as you both know, in Venezuela, crazy uh, inflation over the last number of years and crazy performance in the stock market, of course, right? Because there's, you know, in denominated in uh, the Bolivar, or the, um, then, you know, the stock market looks like it's doing great. You know, as we know, if you denominate it in gold and U.S. dollars and Bitcoin and something else, it's it's horrible. But will do you think? Well, we could we could even take a slice of what's happening now. Are your clients looking and saying, Andy, I get you know what you're saying about you know all this money printing going around, but our portfolio is doing great. The stocks are doing great. Um, I don't really want to like. I don't, I don't want to shift things around. Things are working. And if that continues to be the case, if we keep making all-time highs in the stock markets, you know, how much in, incentive or interest will there be from your clients to, uh, you know, to, to go towards sound money if it's not evident you know, what the benefit of sound money really is and if yeah, it yeah. even has much benefit? Yeah, so that's a great question. And this is, gets to the nub of the investment thesis, at least as, in my view. And that is... Um, as long so <laughs> subtitle of, of my book right why buy bitcoin is investing today in the money of tomorrow and i chose that title uh with some care because that is how i view it as an investment today it is trying to be money it has somewhat succeeded at being money um but it isn't fully developed and it's you know it's it's getting there right it's on its path and so what i what i say what i do say to my clients is you are investing today in the money of tomorrow. And if it was already established and accepted as hard money, or even the world's hardest money, which I think it has a very good shot at becoming, you know, then it would already be worth gold or whatever, right? It'd already be worth at least 10 trillion. <laughs> it would be 50X higher than where it is, you know, or more. So, so that to me is, is the story. And so, yeah, if, if stocks do well, I think it will be in large part because of tons of money printing and stimulus from central banks. And that underpins the fact that eventually money will be debased eventually. Again, I, I agree with you. It's, we're, you know, the, the dollar is the cleanest dirty shirt. And so, you know, the dollar is not in imminent danger of, uh, of, of, of really devaluing rapidly. I don't think I could be surprised. That's the longer term story. But yeah, I think in the meantime, there's so many reasons to own and invest in and speculate on this on this money, this asset that if and when it reaches its potential will be worth many multiples of what it's worth today. 
and I think that thesis plays fine in a you know in a an era when risk assets are are going up because I think you know this is my view that the main reason the risk assets are going up so much the reason they've recovered so much you know since the downturn in March yeah is because of the money printing and is because of that stimulus and by the way I will I'll thinking about another way this could go because one of the things I've you know conversations I have with people is you know, if Bitcoin price isn't higher, you know, 18 months from now, you know, I'll be surprised, right? <laughs> Maybe I'll start questioning the thesis because the world and facts and circumstances really, uh, really are shining a uh, bright light on, on the thesis for Bitcoin. But I can imagine a world actually where Bitcoin kind of treads water, you know, for a year or a year and a half. What does that world look like? In my mind, it's, it's the downturn in market scenario, right? It's the stocks are down 30, 40% you know, from here, you know, we're retesting the the lows. It's a prolonged bear market like we had uh, in the early 1970s in the context of sort of stagflation, right? Sort of repeat of the, of the 70s era, or at least rhyming with the 70s era. And in that scenario, if Bitcoin, you know, holds value and holds its purchasing power when most other assets are down significantly, that's actually a pretty good outcome too. <laughs> so in that respect, it's sort of like multiple ways to win, at least on a relative basis. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. And I get, when you're explaining that, tell me, you tell me what, how you view it. Well, I kind of, if, if everything keeps going up, I actually, I do think that's good for Bitcoin. If, if, if we get all these insolvencies and the market crashes again, for whatever reason, not that it changes, you know, obviously it doesn't change the thesis for Bitcoin, but you know, there just may just be liquidation of risk assets because, you know, people need to cover yeah. a variety of things. So that, that could definitely be the case. And I wonder in the case of Venezuela, if you'd taken, let's say, 100 US dollars in 2015 and you'd put it in the stock or you'd taken 100 uh, Bolivars or Bolivares or, you know, yeah. that currency, you put it in the stock market or you put it in US dollars, where would you be? you know, today that going back to denominate in the local currency, you know, would you, are you better off because the, the U S dollars preserved uh, its purchasing power more than even the advance that you've made in the local currency in the stock market over that time? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm pretty confident that that is the case. What yeah, I am too. It's <laughs> exactly right. That yeah. yes, if you just put exactly, if you just put it into the sound money, you'd have been better off. Yeah. And the last point, oh, sorry, the relatively the sounder money. Yeah. I don't like to, yeah, I don't like to refer to the U S dollar. I just call the money. dollar sound money, <laughs> but you know, it's funny. And then Dan, you can uh, like to get your uh, input on how you think things may play out or the different scenarios. But one of the funniest things about the Goldman uh, slides that uh, they summarize at the end, you know, every, everything that the slide said and you know, they go out, they summarize, you know, Bitcoin is not a real asset and we don't, you know, we don't play in it, blah, blah, blah. And then one of the points out of about seven or eight bullet points was no debasement of USD. <laughs> and I just, you know, I wonder how you could type that knowing, I mean, it, I, I guess it depends on what, how you interpret debasement and inflation, whether uh, monetary or price, but you know, with the government effectively tr printing trillions of dollars, it, it seems that's a pretty discrediting statement, in my opinion, to be able to say no debasement in the USD. Yeah. Anyhow. Related to that is, you know, 
what could actually be really bearish for Bitcoin? Well, if we actually had some fiscal rectitude or some, you know, some some monetary rectitude, right? If the if the Fed said, oh, actually we've taken this too far, you know, we're gonna we're gonna rein it in a bit, and Congress said, oh, uh, maybe you know, printing multi-trillion dollar deficits annually uh, isn't the right thing to do. You know, we're gonna get the budget back in order. That would be terrible for Bitcoin. Uh, do do I think those things are gonna happen? Not a chance. <laughs> And I get, I, so guys, um, I apologize. Um, I know I left a question hanging there for, uh, for Princey. I got a drop. I got a, I got a meeting uh, I got to get to. But, um, but this has been a blast. It was, uh, it was everything I had hoped and, uh, and more. And uh, really appreciate you guys uh, putting this together. Well, it's always yeah, it's been fun. epic. Sorry, mate. Go, you go ahead. Yeah, no, it's been epic. Thanks, Andy. And uh, thanks, John, for hosting. Uh, it's been, um, yeah, it's been, it's been great fun. And uh, I hope um, adds some value to someone somewhere along the line. That's yeah. right. I get, I, I have to, I, by, just by habit and by instinct, I have to do a, a, a 30 or 60 second chill. Uh, of course. Always book, enough why, time for that. You so Why buy Bitcoin? Get it on Amazon <laughs> or, uh, or Apple. Um, you know, check out uh, Swan Bitcoin. And uh, follow me on Twitter, Ed's from Andrew. Andy, you're losing your touch. You haven't done your, this is not investment advice, blah, 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 blah. Right. You're right. None of this is investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that, uh, that Princey said, um, gosh, maybe I, maybe, I, uh, maybe I have lost touch with the uh, regular way of financial establishment. I'm forgetting to do these uh, disclaimers and stuff. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about you, John, but my disclaimer is this is investment advice by Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been saying that yet, but I think it's fairly clear if you listen to uh, most of my stuff. <laughs> it's definitely implied. Yeah. <laughs> Andy, uh, it's always a pleasure, man. I look forward to chatting again soon in the future. Thanks, John. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, man.